You are listening to the First Baptist Church Martin podcast. For more information on our church, visit fbcmartin.org. Now you should have had time to find Titus chapter 2. I thought it would be fitting to discuss uh, this passage this morning from Titus chapter 2 as we just finished up our study through the Psalms this summer, worshiping and, and even worshiping especially in difficult times, but then moving back next week into our ongoing sermon series through 1 Corinthians. Listen, when we get to next week, we're going to get back into some hard-hitting conversations in 1 Corinthians, and I just wanted to take a moment to, Lord willing, encourage you about being obedient to Christ and encourage you about the fact that it doesn't matter what you hear God's Word saying, that you can obey it. You can live a godly life, which we find in the pages of Scripture. And we have everything we need to do that. So that's what our text this morning is all about. I'm going to invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. We're going to be reading this morning from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. The words will be on the screen behind me if you need them. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 say this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for Titus 2, 11 through 14, and the opportunity to dig in to that passage this morning. Lord, we pray that you would move among us this morning and have your way. We know that your word does not return void, but it goes out and accomplishes all of its good purposes. We pray this morning that the good purposes of your word would become apparent in our lives. Lord, would your good purposes and your word's good purposes bear fruit in our hearts this morning because of your word. Lord, would you sanctify us by your truth? We know that your word is truth. Holy Spirit, we pray this morning that you would move among us, you would speak through me. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Give me words that maybe I haven't prepared or cut the things that I have prepared. Let your will be done this morning. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move in the hearts of the hearers this morning, everyone present this morning or maybe watching online. Lord, would you have your way in our hearts and continue to purify for your own possession a people who are zealous for good works. Lord, we we pray that our time this morning is honoring and glorifying to you. We praise you for Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> well, our text for this morning is short, um, but I want to point out that it provides an incredible summary of two things. It provides an incredible summary of the gospel, and it provides an incredible summary of the Christian life. For such a short passage, that's a lot to summarize. And Paul doesn't just summarize it well, but he summarizes it concisely, very briefly, in very few words. I regret to inform you this morning that I do not have the spiritual gift of brevity 
or of being concise. So get comfortable. Um, I'm excited to get into the text this morning. And uh, even though there are very few words here, there's a lot to be said. So let's dig in. The gospel, first of all, is summarized here. We see the gospel in that God showed his grace to us in bringing salvation, verse 11, and bringing us redemption, redeeming us in verse 14, through the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. Christ on the cross in our place. We should have been there, but he took it for us. The gospel tells us that by repenting of our sin, by placing our faith in Jesus Christ and in nothing else, not ourselves, nothing in the world, By repenting of our sins and putting our faith in Him, we can be spared God's wrath. We can be spared God's punishment for sin. And that's an amazing thing. We're grateful for that. This is the only way. The gospel includes the only way for us to have peace with God. If you have not believed the gospel and been saved, you do not have peace with God. And that's a very big problem. He brought us this salvation. He gave himself for this redemption, it says in our text. And to receive these blessings, all we have to do is call upon his name. To believe again upon him for freedom and salvation from the penalty of our sin. Don't you think it's beautiful? Isn't this a glorious gospel? We've been singing about it. Let's not lose momentum. Let's keep going. Amen? All right, sermon over. This altar is open. I mean, the gospel is that powerful. We can go home. It's amazing. It's that powerful. It's that beautiful. The gospel has filled sermons. The gospel has filled songs for thousands of years at this point. We should get excited when we hear the gospel. So what more could be said? What more can possibly be said on top of this? Turns out Paul has a lot more to say. His comments on salvation and redemption, even though they are incredible in our passage today, they make up only a very small part of these verses. The rest of the passage shows us what life looks like as Christians. I told you it summarizes the gospel, it summarizes the Christian life. How would you tell someone about the Christian life? How would you respond to the question, what's it mean to be a Christian? I think he, Paul, summarizes this well in this letter to his young church leader, Titus. So we see that God has appeared. His grace has appeared And brought salvation. We also see in verse 13 that his glory is going to appear. Okay? When he returns to gather his people and judge his enemies. And for now, we live in this in-between. We live between the grace of God's first coming. When Christ came to the cross. We live between the grace of God and the glory of God, which we will see at Christ's second coming. And ever since His grace appeared, God's people, we, have been instructed to practice godliness 
until his second coming, until his glory appears. That's what this text is all about. And even more amazingly, Paul is going to tie a bow on it and say, if you're going to practice that godliness, if you're going to do the things that you've been instructed to do until Christ returns, the only way to accomplish it is by my grace. Grace appeared bringing salvation, but that's not all it appeared to do. It came to do and it intends to do more. So our question for this morning is, what does living between grace and glory look like? That's the Christian life. What does living between grace and glory look like? We'll see that the power of Christ's grace and the hope of His glory lets us know that Christ followers practice godliness until He returns. It's our big focus for the morning. Christ followers practice godliness until He returns. Look with me at verses 11 through 12. And let's try to figure out how this all plays out. It says in verses 11 through 12, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now let's stop there. It's, I've already alluded to the fact that grace has appeared and glory is going to appear. So we have these attributes of God, God's character that are marked by the word appear. God's grace appeared, God's glory will appear. You can recognize that there in verses 11, 12, and 13. He says God's grace appeared at the cross of Christ when He came the first time. I mean, let's just discuss for a second, what is grace? How would we define God's grace? Some might say unmerited favor or undeserved favor. God's love and blessing given to the unworthy might be another possible definition. Well, don't we see the greatest demonstration of undeserved favor and favor given to the unworthy? Don't we see that best in the person and the work of Jesus Christ? He was sent for us even though we were undeserving. He was sent for us, even though we were unworthy of such a sacrifice. Jesus Christ is the grace of God. And so when Paul tells Titus, the grace of God appeared, he's referring to Jesus. Look again, doesn't it say, bringing with it salvation? It's exactly what Christ did. Jesus Christ is the grace of God. He'll go on in verse 13 to say that God's glory will appear at the second coming of Christ. That is when Christ will return to gather His people together. To finish what He started and judge His enemies. It will be glorious. And while many rejected and denied who Christ was and the truth of who Christ was during His first coming, they will not deny or reject it in His second coming because His glory will be undeniable. It will be visible for all to see. So we begin to, to, to pick up on what Paul's doing in this passage. He creates these bookends, again, that we live in between the first coming and the second coming of Christ, the grace of God in Christ, the glory 
of God coming in Christ. What do we do on the, in the in-between? It goes on to say that the grace appeared bringing salvation for all people. Let's address this elephant just real fast. Does this mean that all are saved? No. That would contradict pretty much the rest of Scripture's. It does not mean that all are saved, but instead we should understand that this means salvation is made available to all peoples, as in all types of peoples and all people groups. Do you realize, there's a, there's a large number of people in this room right now, do you realize that none of us would be here, none of us would have a reason to gather in this place if it weren't for Christ? Why else would we gather? As a matter of fact, if you think about before the cross, there was no reason for us to gather. Because the Old Testament, the stories, the history that we find here in God's Word, it's, it's relating to God's people of Israel. Right? So do you realize that when the grace of God appeared in Jesus Christ, He made salvation available to all people, ourselves included? These poor Gentiles, these poor uncircumcised people who are not God's original covenant people, we have a lot of reason to be thankful that the grace of God appeared, making salvation available for all people. That's really good for us. That's what that should be understood to mean. And it's, it's, it's possible to be the beneficiary of this. I said this earlier, by repenting and believing on Christ. That is how you become one of God's people and how salvation that is available to you is made yours. But we get caught up in these questions. We get caught up in these secondary issues and we want to wrestle and, and, and try to figure out and, and understand, is this what that means? Does that mean everybody's saved? No, that's not Paul's focus, is it here? Don't miss the forest for the trees. Zoom out a little bit. What's Paul trying to say? Is he trying to make a statement about everyone going to heaven? No. His focus is actually what he goes on to say in verse 12, that grace goes on working in our lives beyond our conversion and beyond our salvation. It says that grace is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And it's training us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, now, here, This means that we can't look at grace as only important way back there where we believed. We never graduate from the gospel. We never graduate from the grace of God. We need it every single day. And if we believe that we only needed it back there, we're missing a huge part of God's intended purpose for His grace in our lives. I mean, let's just make this really practical. This means that if you're here today and you believe in Christ, you follow Christ, then just like it says that grace is training you, it means grace is your trainer. 
Grace is your trainer right now, and it means to train you to do specific things. Is that how you think about grace? Do you think much about grace outside the context of your salvation? Do you think of grace like a fitness trainer who's going to push you and motivate you toward your goals? What does this look like for grace to train us? Well, let's just use that idea of grace being our trainer. What part of uh, having a trainer does grace relate to? Part of what a trainer is going to tell you First is what you need to cut out of your life, right? For instance, some of the enemies of your fitness goals include a sedentary lifestyle, unhealthy foods or unhealthy portion size, tobacco or alcohol abuse. Well, likewise, Paul says you need to cut out the enemies of your spiritual goals, namely ungodliness and worldly passions. He's referring to the thoughts, the actions that are against God and against God's ways. And when you participate in them, they naturally distance you from God. Paul gives in Galatians this kind of short list. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Don't we see Jesus renouncing so many of these behaviors in the Scriptures and in the Gospels during His ministry? Just like Jesus did, we too are instructed to renounce or to reject these sorts of things. So that means as you become aware of the presence of these sorts of things in your life, in your heart, you're supposed to reject them. You're supposed to flee from them. You're supposed to cast them off. You're supposed to crucify your flesh with its passions and desires. That means it doesn't matter what culture tells you is right. It means it doesn't matter how much you think, well, God, you made me like this. God, you put this desire in me. No, God's aware you have these desires, and he says put them in check. What matters is aligning our lives with God's ways, not aligning our lives with what would make us happy in the moment. It means you don't just say, not my will, O Lord, but yours be done. It means you actually live that way. God instructs you to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And Paul is telling us that grace wants to train us how to do that. Another part of what a fitness trainer is going to tell you has to do with what needs to be added to your life. What's not currently present. Some things that help you reach your fitness goals include regular exercise, a healthy and balanced diet, good sleep, 
proper rest, among other things. Just like he said you need to renounce these things, Paul says that God's grace will train you to add certain things, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Which again, we see Christ doing in his ministry, in his life, as portrayed in the Gospels. Who was more self-controlled than Christ? Who was more upright and godly than Christ in his actions? He is our example. We look to him as we seek to do these things. A self-controlled, upright, and godly life looks like refusing to let your temptations or your worldly passions rule over you. It's fully aware that you're going to have temptations. Scriptures are fully aware that you're going to have passions. But what happens when they well up within you? Nobody here can say that they're not tempted. Nobody here can say that they don't have these passions that, that, that do well up inside of them. We all do. But do we let them manifest themselves? Do we let them come out? He says, be self-controlled. And instead of letting them rule over you, you should strive to meet the standards that God has laid out in His Word. Being upright is defined in God's Word. How do you do that? Look here. How do you live a godly life? You do the things that honor God. You obey His commands. That's how you live a godly life. Once again, I've already said this, but you, you crucify your flesh with its passions and desires. But unfortunately for many of us, our experience is that we let our passions and desires crucify our commitment to godly living. Why? Why? Are they not valuable enough to us? The words of God, the commands of God? This is hard stuff. Christ did this. He renounced ungodliness. But in all of his ways, he practiced self-control and uprightness. And Paul says again, if we let it, God's grace will train us to do the same. So what's holding you back this morning? What's, what's standing in the way of you living a self-controlled, upright, and godly life? You do make time for what's important to you. You do make time for what's valuable to you. Is obedience to God, is, is glorifying Him by living a godly life important and valuable to you? I think if we do struggle with these things, if we do struggle with choosing godliness over ungodliness, I think because of this passage, and this is why it's so important, I think Paul would say it's, it's due to your training. 
This is a conversation about what grace will train you to do. If it's not working, it's something with your training, right? But don't for a second think that God or His grace has somehow failed you if you're still choosing ungodliness. If you look again at verse 12, it says, Grace appeared training us to renounce and training us to live. So grace is doing the training, but you have to do the renouncing. You have to do the living. It means it's your responsibility to put these things into practice, to practice godliness. God's grace isn't a mediocre or subpar trainer. We're fallen, sinful humans. We lack discipline. We wage war with God, even though He has saved us. I can't take all of the, or I can take all of the instructions and the motivation and advice that a trainer can offer me, but if I don't put it into practice, then nothing changes, right? I've experienced times in my life when nothing changed, and I got to be honest, that's tiring. Aren't you tired of nothing changing? I'll follow what Ron prayed earlier. We know that there are people here who are tired. We know that there are people here with woes, concerns, fears, looming dates on the calendar. We know that. Aren't you tired of nothing changing? Don't you wish you could find victory over your anger, over your lust? Your lying, your anxiety, your unforgiveness, your love for money, your gossiping. And don't you wish that you could find victory over your spiritual laziness and apathy? I know I do. These are wars that we all face. And many of us come in here weary from the road and from the weak. Maybe we don't have some big looming issue, but I hope and pray that many of us desire to be more faithful followers of Christ. Paul says we're supposed to live with self-control, uprightness, and godliness. In this present age, it's not something that we wait for. It's, it's not something that's coming. It's not going to happen after Christ returns in glory and everything's cleaned up and sin's done away with. It's, he says now. We can experience these things. So why aren't they happening? Why aren't things changing? My experience is that over years of walking with Christ, I have had a lot of moments and frustrations where I wish my spiritual life would grow and, and my my struggles would, would come to an end. And I fought and I tried and, and I tried to do it myself. And I told myself it was just a, a faith issue. Maybe that's why. Or I blamed the circumstances around me. It was everyone else's fault. I'm a victim. None of that made my situation better. None of that helped me. None of that 
made spiritual change happen. What did make it happen consistently is looking up into the gracious face of Christ. Sitting at His feet and drinking deeply of His grace. Approaching His throne of grace and asking Him to show me Again and again and again, how wonderful He is. Take my eyes off of me, Lord. Show me who You are. Show me the power that You put on display on the cross. I don't have it within myself. I've tried. Nothing works. It's then and only then. Time and time again, it's then that I experience this stuckness pass. And I experience God's grace come to me. Remind me that it's not all up to me. And it does its work within me. Turns out I needed grace and the reminder of grace more than I realized. I forgot that grace, His grace was sufficient for me. Why do I say all this? Because I think that Paul is trying to make this point in verse 14. If you look there, he says, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Of all the things that Paul could say in this moment to Titus, why would he share this? Titus is a believer. Titus traveled with Paul all around. Paul trusted a really messed up church in Crete to Titus. So I don't think his understanding of the gospel is in question. Why say this here? I think it's because without reminding Titus of the gospel, none of these commands to practice godliness will be possible. Why does sitting at the foot of Christ and drinking deeply from His grace make any difference? It's because that's the only place that you will find what you need to accomplish these commands He's given you. And so Paul tells this young church leader, go back to the gospel. Go back to the gospel. He tells him, this is another point for the morning, you are enabled by God's grace to practice godliness. You're trained By grace, you're also enabled by grace to practice godliness. His grace redeems you and brings you salvation, but it's supposed to continue its work within you, purifying you, enabling you to be zealous for good works. This goes beyond just simply following the example of Christ on this earth. I'm talking about the grace, the power of God's grace at work within you. Growing your capacity for godly living and for good deeds. As you fail, as you sin, as you are tripped up, grace doesn't point down at you and say, you wretched sinner, you you failure. What does grace tell you? Get up. Let's keep going. Come on. It's okay. There's no condemnation for you. The first message makes it really hard 
to obey the commands of Christ. The second is the very enabling power of grace to keep trying. When grace is at work in the heart of a believer, it doesn't matter how feeble the attempts to live a godly life may be. It doesn't matter all the accusations of the enemy. It doesn't matter the accusations even your heart may bring. There is no condemnation for you. Christ, knowing full well the depths of your depravity and how many times you would fail, still chose to purify you, still chose to make you His own possession so that you could go out and do His good works. I believe that when we dwell on that great grace of God, dwell on how He has lavished His grace upon us and and, and couple that with how undeserving we are of such a sacrifice and such a love, it's there that this this movement in our heart, the stirring of our affections occurs and we are driven once again to obey Christ's commands. Left to ourselves, this is never going to happen. Never. You might be able for a day or a week or a month to put on a good face and do some things that look like really good looking works. But Scripture tells us that they amount to nothing because Christ is not in them. You're doing that on your strength, not on His. I've prayed this week that this wouldn't just be a a sermon about morality. What do we do every time we see a list? Say, yes, I can check one of those off every couple hours, every couple days. I can do that. That's not what we're trying to do here. As a matter of fact, when we focus on What we're supposed to do, we forget that everything that needs to be done is done. Christ perfectly accomplished everything for you on the cross. And it's out of that wonderful grace for you that you can then go serve Him. You can then go obey Him and live godly lives. But I don't want this to just be about do, do, do. Because morality doesn't exalt Christ. It exalts us and what we can do. And I want to exalt Christ. That's why we come together on Sunday mornings, right? That's what we're supposed to do as we go out from this place. Exalting Christ is not just singing our favorite worship song. Exalting Christ is giving to the Tennessee Baptist golden offering. Exalting Christ is sharing the gospel with your loved ones. Exalting Christ is turning off that show or that movie that the Lord is convicting you of watching because it's not propelling you towards self-control or uprightness or godliness. I don't want this to be about morality. And I think verse 14 really helps us, pointing us back to the gospel. Telling Titus, hey, It's not about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. I think Paul is telling Titus here, put your boots away. Go back to the grace of God. Look at what's done for you and let that incredible grace propel you to live for Him and obey all of His commands. All right, really quickly, all of the good Bible students in the room are 
worried that I'm just going to skip verse 13. Promise you I will not. Let's go there now. Verse 13, Paul says that as we do these things, we live with self-control, uprightness, and godliness. As we practice good works, we're supposed to do them as we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is our final point for the morning. You are waiting for God's glory as you practice godliness. You are trained by grace to practice godliness. You are enabled by grace to practice godliness. You wait for God's glory as you practice that godliness. So we're not waiting idly. Godliness and good works are what the master's servants must be about while he is away. And this is what he should find them doing upon his return. Think about Jesus' parable in Matthew 24. It says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant who his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know. Christ expects his servants, us, to be about his work while he is away. This is his household. I'm not just talking about this room. I'm talking about when he rose from the grave and told his disciples, I have all authority over heaven and earth. This is mine. And then he entrusted that household to the church. What are we doing with it? Are we caring for it? Are we taking the right food and drink out to the people who need it? What kind of servants are we? Christ expects His church and His people to represent Him until He returns. He even says, this is, I think, amazing, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and turn, I'm sorry, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So the good works that we're told to be zealous for may even lead others to turn from their sin and to give glory to our Father in heaven. To give glory to God. These good works we're supposed to be zealous for carry the gospel with them. This is what Christ wants to find when He returns. I mean, maybe it's a scary question to ask, but again, what kind of servants are we? If a healthy church is marked by its good works. How are we doing? How are we doing? You saw in that video that disaster relief was mentioned. I thought about disaster relief and how so often you hear on the news uh, after uh, a disaster, the churches showed up first. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. And let's do more of it. But what about 
the guy hanging out under the awning right now, right over here, who's hungry? What about the folks that walk up and down University Street knocking on every door for help? They think they just need a meal. We know they need the gospel. What about your family members who are on their way to hell because they don't know Christ? What a great deed to honor Christ by sharing the gospel with them. And while they don't realize it now, it's an incredibly good deed to to share it with them, to take to them one of the best good works you could do for them. And as we go and do all these things, as we try to do good works as Christ's own possession, a people for his own possession, we get to do so with hope, it says. We have a blessed hope. We know that as we share the gospel, we know that as we live self-controlled lives and try to be upright and godly, the world will hate us. Scripture tells us that. It also tells us that anyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. We're told in this passage to live a godly life. It's not just about desire. This is also a command. So persecution is to be expected. But we don't do so without hope. We have a great and blessed hope. Hope of the fact that that Christ is returning and when He does so, it will be in glory to gather us, His people, to make all of His enemies into His footstool. We have hope of living in eternity with Him where sin has been removed. And we are free to worship our Lord without our sins getting in the way. If we have this hope, I mean, what's the worst that they could possibly do to you as you unashamedly live your Christian life and live out your Christian faith? Insult you or fire you? They could abandon you, throw you in prison? They might take away your home or kill you. We, we think that these things are far from us, but you only need to jump on less than a, a day's plane ride to get to places where this happens. And like many have said before me, it's, it's probably coming here. But it's already happening now. This is a reality. Whatever the threats this world may try to cast upon us, your hope in Christ's return is greater. Amen? So what does living between grace and glory look like? It looks like living godly lives according to God's Word. It looks like doing good works that show people the Father and Lord willing leads them to give Him glory. And it looks like holding fast to your hope as you do all of that. Grace will train you. Grace will enable you. And as you do the things that trains and enables you to do, you you wait for His glory to appear. Once again, Christ followers practice godliness until He returns. Let me make two practical points 
I'm talking to the folks who may not know Christ right now. If you're here this morning and you don't know or you've never experienced the grace of God, maybe you're here this morning, you're looking for hope. And maybe you're putting your hope in something other than Jesus. I want to encourage you to consider the claims of Christ. I want to, consider, I want to ask you to consider the fact that Scripture tells us we're sinners and separated by our sin from God, that He has to punish us. It also says that there's no way to fix that, to get back in right relationship with our good God. But by the grace of God, He sent His Son to do for us the very thing that He required that we do. And it's done. And all we have to do is respond to that truth. Respond by turning away from our sins and turning to Christ in faith. Acknowledging He's the only way for us to have peace with God. And if we don't turn to Him, if we don't have peace with God, we will be punished for all of eternity under the unbearable wrath of God. I want you to consider this, please. And I pray that you would put your faith today in Christ. He's the only thing that can offer true hope. Everything else you put your hope in in this life is going to let you down. Everything consistently. He's brought you salvation. He has redeemed you. He wants to purify you. All of that present in this passage. Would you put your faith in Christ today and be saved? Now, if you're here today and you're a Christ follower, but you're not practicing godly deeds, godliness and good works, I want to challenge you. I want to call you to repentance. That's a sin to not obey this command. I want to ask you to return to Christ in obedience. Practice godliness. If you're not sure how to do that, let's let's figure it out together in His Word. I want to encourage you, if you don't know the first steps to being obedient to Christ and to being self-controlled and upright and godly in this present age, I want you to ask the Lord to reveal again to you His grace. Once again, it's not about do, do, do. It's about the grace of Christ propelling you and motivating you and giving you the power to do all of this. Let grace train you. Let His glorious return give you hope. If you were encouraged by today's sermon, leave us a rating and subscribe to the podcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church Martin, visit fpcmartin.org.